0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my job? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads.
1: Hello, I am Harmony.
0: I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we are reading our second section of The Passion of Mary Magdalene by Elizabeth Cunningham.
1: That is true. So we read from page 209, I believe, and we read up to page 48. Eighteen, chapter 51 help. So that's where we stopped. Maggie, do you feel confident enough to give a description of what happened in this section?
0: Yeah, it probably won't be quite as comprehensive as the one you gave last week, but I can give the summary. So this section follows, I would say, a lot of transient turning points for Maeve. So we open up and she is reconnecting with her foster father, Bran, And as that's happening, Maeve uncovers a lot of truths about sort of herself and her past and Bran, as well as officially sort of uncovering some truths about Paulina and Paulina's heritage that begins slowly to change the nature of the relationship that Paulina has with Maeve. Paulina discovers that Cater was not her father, and in fact specifically punished her Paulina as a child for her mother's infidelity essentially and Maeve kind of helps her work through some of that trauma I would say as Maeve gains more freedom more agency she becomes an official priestess of Isis during this time until she is set free after chaos essentially happens when Paulina ends up fucking Decius and then her husband finds out and there's adultery charges and Paulina throws Maeve under the bus and the entire priestesshood of Isis ends up in jail with her and the domita from the first part of the book, whose name is Escaping Me, ends up helping Paulina essentially rescue Maeve and all of her fellow priestesses. She becomes freed and she... And Joseph reconnect and essentially decide that she's going to go find her lover. So most of the story then sort of takes a turn where she travels to Jerusalem and then up to Galilee, where she starts her own sort of, as they fashion it, kind of pagan temple, the Temple of Magdalene, where she does her work as a priestess of Isis. She ends up being baptized by John as they're kind of fighting and she's trying to find Jesus. And then kind of towards the end, she is finally reunited with Jesus. We see them have this really intense, passionate, brief, kind of angry set of interactions because Jesus ultimately has to go away again and do his Jesus thing. And Maeve is... Staying at the temple, she has a hard time letting him go, but ultimately agrees that that's the path he needs to take. And they kind of end up circling each other in Galilee, sometimes working together, sometimes not working together, as Maeve really sets up her domain as the priestess of this temple and Jesus does what Jesus does. And that's kind of, I would say, the overarching... View of what happens in this section.
1: Yeah, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Good job, Miss Mags. So, I think first, one of the things that I want to talk about is Paulina's character shift. And I want to know what you feel about that. Because Paulina, even though she becomes Maeve's friend, is still a spoiled rich brat. And I know that you last time were really, really not feeling Paulina. Have your. Opinions on her changed at all? Do you feel more empathy? What's going on?
0: I think that I am really tracking with Maeve so far on how she feels about pretty much everything. The author has done a really great job of planting you in Maeve's head and kind of showcasing how she feels. I think that I do feel more empathy for Paulina, but I will say that I think some of the tolerance I've grown for her is because she features a lot less in this part of the book. She ends up getting married to a person she actually likes after her husband dies, and she is very independently wealthy, doing her own thing, and is in some ways attempting to make up for her sins with Maeve by being her benefactress, not by being her friend, but, you know, by fiscally supporting her in this time. So I think that if we still had the same amount of Paulina that we did in the first part, I'd probably still be pretty annoyed with her but I understand and have empathy for her position. And I more importantly understand why Maeve has kind of had a change of heart about her. And I can appreciate the fact that even if it took a long time, and she did a lot of terrible things, she has in a lot of ways grown up and seen the error of her ways. Yes, she is still very childish and very much a rich, spoiled brat. But She is slowly seeing the world through a broader context, I think, and trying to make right what she can for the mistakes that she previously made. And I can respect that at the very least from a character.
1: Yeah, to me, it almost feels a little bit like reparations, because she's putting her money where her mouth is. She can't undo all of the harm that she's But Maeve doesn't ask her to. And that's an interesting choice that I want to unpack with you. There is a scene after Maeve has figured out Paulina's trauma and Paulina's story and helped Paulina to realize it where Paulina is telling Maeve that she loves her and Maeve refuses to say it back, even though at this time she does love Paulina. And she admits that. We know that, but she refuses to say it. And she refuses to say it because Paulina has still had her enslaved and is keeping her as a slave. And she doesn't believe that she should love Paulina until she's free. And that's a really, really complicated emotion. And I wanted, I don't know, I feel like Maeve's forgiveness here is emotionally heavy, I guess. It's not fully unpacked, but also... Maybe it's because it's just something so big that we can't unpack it, I guess. And I'm trying to look at it as a case study of forgiveness. (laughs) Would you be forgiving, Paulina?
0: Yeah. You know, I actually thought about that a lot through this book because we talked about forgiveness- last time and it was really just at the forefront of my mind while I was reading this and whether I'd be able to forgive Paulina and I think the answer is ultimately I don't know because like I was saying living in Maeve's head as a character I get why she ultimately forgives Paulina and I think that forgiveness was really hard for Maeve to swallow and really hard for her to give especially because Paulina really did not do very much to Earn it, I think, until after Maeve had already offered it to a certain extent. I think it also ties back to some of the conversation we had last week, though, about Maeve's trauma processing and the fact that because of the nature of her enslavement and relationship with Paulina, she does view and think of that trauma differently than a lot of the other trauma she's endured because there were moments in it where she felt like she still had agency. And it was her job. And it's a job that especially now we see in this third of the book, she is fully embraced. And she knows that she's good at and is kind of like, well, you know, this is just part of what I do. And I think that if I came to that same conclusion in that position, then maybe I could have forgiven her.
2: But I don't know that I would
0: have been able to. But it's also really hard because, you know, this is also steeped in historical context and what was and wasn't done at that point. And so much of what's happening in the novel right now, I think, is really steeped in that historical context. And I might seem even more horrifying through a contemporary lens than it was at that time. Again, circling back to the conversation we had last week where the girls who grew up in the Roman cultural context we're almost grateful to be sort of enslaved and in this whorehouse because they were safe and they had jobs and they had a skill and they knew they could earn their freedom. It's hard for me to put myself in, in that historical context, you know? So I guess that I come to maybe, but I agree with you that the this kind of hard-won forgiveness really feels potent here, and I think your point about Paulina and reparations was a really smart one.
1: I also want to explore a little bit, because as you were talking, it occurred to me that maybe Maeve is capable of loving. Paulina in part because not only does she feel like she has some agency sometimes within this relationship but also because she views Paulina as equally trapped but that's not the case and that continues to not be the case even once they're both free Paulina is still rich Paulina still gets to keep her children Paulina still gets to marry a man who is nice and kind and also rich And Paulina also still thinks it's okay to keep slaves, which is very briefly mentioned towards the end of this section. I think it's important for us to look at because it parallels some power structures that we still deal with. And I also, as a white woman in today's society, I feel in a lot of ways like Paulina. I am that epitome of privilege. And so I want to look at how Paulina could act more ethically, maybe, or what is and isn't okay about her behavior. That's a really good point. And I
0: think to bring it into that contemporary context, what's sort of missing, I think, from Maeve's comparison here is that aspect of class privilege, essentially, because Maeve views Paulina as being equally trapped in the same way that almost all the women in the society are trapped kind of under this very, very strict patriarchal structure. And there are moments where that's true, but you're right in that Paulina's riches, Paulina's class privilege, ends up meaning that she does have a lot more freedom even when both women are free. And I mean, I guess when it comes to Paulina behaving more ethically sort of on the flip side of this. First of all, obviously not taking more slaves. That should have been... I don't even know if that's... That's not even meriting mention. I think that some of these other comparisons, though, are hard because being able to keep her children and get married and stuff, in theory, Maeve could do two at this point. She can't get her other child back because she's been excommunicated which is something that she still suffers with and struggles with Maeve views herself very much as being tied to Jesus's fate in a very literal way that this is just the way her life is going to be and I think that if I wanted Paulina to behave more ethically I would want her to not be Maeve's benefactor at all I would want her to just turn a significant portion of her riches over to Maeve and be done with it, you know? Which doesn't mean that they couldn't continue to be friends, but I think that the whole benefactor thing is kind of weird because it may it, it keeps Maeve from having her own class privilege because she's still dependent on Paulina to offer these things to her. And I think also now that she is luckily in a loving marriage, I mean, I guess that there isn't anything to say that Paulina hasn't done this, but she also... There isn't anything to say that she has. We haven't seen her use her new status as somebody who will be listened to to try and change things. Which, again, is complicated because they are in a new country where they're very much viewed as outsiders. A lot of what we see here is a very, I guess, kind of orthodox sort of strict version of Judaism that was being practiced in these areas at this time. So, I mean, Paulina and her husband are also pariahs, even if it isn't quite as intense as Maeve and the other priestesses who live at the temple. But we don't really see Paulina actively trying to change things structurally. We see her really trying to just make amends to Maeve. And that's well and good in their individual relationship, But I think if we were to actually see her act ethically, we would need to see her move beyond just fixing what her individual relationship was and actually try and make some societal change, pulling it, I guess, kind of into a contemporary context. That's where I would start at the very
1: least. Thank you. I think that's a very I also think that's very smart and I think that makes a lot of sense. That makes me feel like I understand the situation better. That's the thing that still upsets me about the Paulina situation is that she still I think the forgiveness was necessary for Maeve's mental health and that is good and fine, but also Paulina as a character still hasn't really fully come to terms with her privilege. And hasn't used it in a positive way that benefits anyone's life outside of Maves, At least not consciously. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I think that when I think about how I advocate for sometimes solving larger issues in the world, it starts with the people you already know, you know, and making sure that your individual person-to-person relationships are good. But I do think that there has to be some point where you have to step outside of that and start advocating on a larger level, even if it's just at work, you know, making sure that everyone has a space at the table, everyone's seen and represented. And then, you know, taking that other places, I think that that step's really important. And we're not seeing Paulina kind of take that step at this point. And again, complicated in the historical context because of the ways in which Paulina and her husband aren't necessarily accepted by the society that they're currently living in. So who knows how much privilege they actually have to make change at, at that macro level. But we could have at least seen an attempt and we haven't yet.
1: So I think part of the issue here is that this book is taking place during a time at least the world presented in the book is very hierarchical. And it's like that in every society, except for sometimes Maeve society, which is also very hierarchical but sometimes she makes mention of things like we don't own the pro- we don't own property there we have cattle and that's it and I see a Marxist lens running through this book in a way that I didn't pick up when I was 12, 13 reading it. That's really exciting to me, but also is exciting because Maggie and I have had conversations like this before when we read things like Parable of the Sower or Parable of the Talents. There is a belief system out there that Jesus himself was deeply socialist in terms of wanting a utopia for all. And this book really showcases that idea, this idea of breaking hierarchy. And I think that we first start to see it at Temple Magdalene. So what is your response to Temple Magdalene as an institution? Good question. One
0: thing to say before that is I think that your point about the idea of breaking hierarchy and sort of Jesus as socialist is really important because it's true, but also we see it more through Maeve than we do through actual Jesus and actual Jesus's actions because at this point we're actually starting to get a little bit of him. There's a point where Maeve talks about the fact that you know the disciples are all kind of criticized but also uh, there's a group of women who talk about the fact that every time Jesus and them come back it's like a feast it's like a celebration every day and how much they eat and I think there's an interesting Marxist criticism in that as well. I think when it comes to Temple Magdalene I totally agree with you about this kind of more equitable socialist lens Maeve accepts everyone. She really doesn't expect payment from anyone, which I mean is obviously partially because of the fact that Paulina is subsidizing the whole thing. But I'm not convinced that even if Paulina wasn't, that Maeve would really be charging or anything. And she's really created this kind of society of people who, who are thinking new things, really. And that By being able to step out of their very rigidly structured society just for a second in Temple Magdalene, they're able to think sort of new and different things. I think Judith is almost the prime example of that. Because she is still deeply Jewish. there's a, She criticizes them all up and down, even after she's lived there for a really long time. Because a lot of the things they do are antithetical to what she's been taught and what she believes is right. But she's also able to come around in other ways. She doesn't actually mind living there. She has, she's created deep and meaningful bonds. And there's also a point where Maeve is talking to Judith and Jesus' mother is outside the gate with Jesus' brothers and sisters. And Judith is talking about the fact that there's so many people, and it looks like this might be kind of bad. And Babe goes, "Do you not want to feed them?" And Judith is like, "How? When have you ever known me to not feed anyone?" of course I'll feed them. And I feel like it's such a small line and it's funny to repeat it now, but I feel like to me that just shows the ways in which you can break out of some of what you've been taught about what makes people good and bad and just kind of accept people and that offering what you have to others and supporting them, it really just is the way forward and very much is the way at Temple Magdalene, which is impressive because it takes a lot to deal with people who think that you're inherently wrong just for the way you live your life when you're not hurting anyone and not just deal with them but accept them to the point where they start to view you differently because you have offered so much to them which I think is really at least partially what's happening at Temple
1: Magdalene. I agree and I think it's important for us to read during a time of such intense polarization where Maggie and I talk a lot about how do we actually deal with this The fact that, you know, 50% of our population believes these awful, horrible things without, you know, just rolling over to them. A quick note on Judith and feeding. I've noticed and I'd like to know if there are any people who are listening right now who have any scholarly knowledge or experience with the culture of Judaism and its historical roots. I would love if you weighed in on this. Send us an email at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. But Elizabeth Cunningham, Most of the Jewish characters we're introduced to here are very welcoming and feed people and I wonder if this is a tenet of the religion because I don't actually have a lot of exposure to this religion and the idea of the stranger comes back again too and not having read the bible not having read the new testament at least I don't know what that's symbolic of but on page 300 Joseph takes Maeve and her friends to go see this scholarly Jew who's a much better Jew than Joseph is and his name is Nicodemus and so they're talking maybe is talking about how she didn't know at the time that it wasn't okay for him to eat with women and gentiles which is anyone who isn't Jewish I think. And and she says If anyone had challenged him, he might have shot back, be kind to the stranger for you were once strangers in Egypt. Many of his fellow doctors of law would have considered his interpretation of that text as too liberal and too literal that's why Joseph trusted him however pious and observant Nicodemus was a maverick and a free thinker too but this idea of the stranger comes back and this idea of being inherently welcoming to the stranger and that so far has been our experience for the most part when we actually get to talk to the Jewish characters where they are now in the book
0: Yeah, it's true. And the only ones that haven't been welcoming really have been ones who had an idea of who Maeve was at first and were kind of like, oh, good God, why are you here? (laughs) But it was to her specifically, not necessarily. I mean, there were definitely, I think, implications and rightly so with the historical context of the fact that people looked at them strangely and, you know, were against them being whores and things like this. But no one was mean to them by any means. And anyone who was, it was just because they had really hoped, I think, that Jesus had left Maeve behind in a previous chapter. They really wanted him to let her go.
1: Yeah, because he, since his birth, we we found out through the text, has been prophesized over as somebody who's going to be a great religious scholar and Jesus's whole thing the whole reason he can't be a great religious scholar is because he asks too many questions and breaks too many rules and he literally goes out and falls in love with in their words a barbarian right who worships pagan idol tree and you know he's laying with woman and all of these horrible things that are preventing him from his his great faith <laughs> Which is extra interesting because
0: within that, there becomes an even more intensely, a group of people who is even more intensely devoted to the idea that he is the Messiah. Mary B, for example, even as all of this is happening, part of the reason she resents and doesn't like Maeve is because she feels like Maeve is a distraction. But ultimately, even as Jesus is doing things that others would not agree with, there's still a sect of people who are intensely like, no, Jesus is the Messiah. And we start to get real imagery of that here too, because Maeve starts having prophecies of him. Like when she and Mary are staring at the gate, and Mary says the Messiah is going to walk through that gate. And Maeve it has a vision and sees it happen essentially and it's Jesus walking through the gate so yeah there's a lot happening there
1: so this book doesn't really get into much about how Jesus and Maeve first met but there are hints of it here and there and it's very very subtle but there is a running theme where Maeve even at the beginning believes herself and believes Jesus to kind of be prophets and she knows that he's magical in the way that she is magical. And that part of why she's so invested in this story of being lovers of the world. She's already seen greatness. And it's not mentioned in this book directly. I mean, it's kind of mentioned. He was at her prophet college, her bard college, when he, he came to the Celtic lands. And not just anyone is allowed to do that. So he's always been magnificent. She just didn't know what the magnificent was yet.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing it for her start to take shape a little bit what it looks like and because of that we're also seeing her wrestle with the idea that as her visions are starting to sharpen they aren't necessarily everything that she had hoped they would be for both of them you know she's so invested in this idea that they are the lovers of the world together they're both magical in similar ways they're both prophets but his path continually takes him away from her and i think that part of the hints you get is this Cognitive dissonance of the fact that what Maeve had hoped some of these visions mean actually isn't really the way things are playing out. And I think that as the visions sharpen it offers her comfort because she's able to take comfort in the fact that
1: they're doing what they have to do.
0: But it still doesn't necessarily make the separation easier. Not all the time, at least.
1: Yeah, yeah. When she starts to realize that he's going to be this prophet, there's a big realization that he is not just her lover. In the way that she's not just his lover, right? Because she still chooses to be... She still chooses to sleep with other men. Even though he's her one and only. Because that's the work that she's called to do. And that is sacred to her. In in the same way that... Being a prophet is sacred to him. And also,
0: this is, like, such a small detail in comparison to this larger conversation, but it's also interesting because she has to wrestle with that part of herself, too, and that that is what's sacred and what needs to happen because she's jealous when she finds out that he's been with other women. And, and she knows that it's hypocritical because this is what she's called to do. But there's this real wrestling. Nothing in this book is cut and dry and simple. And that's, I think, part of what I love about it is that these characters feel very human and very contradictory because they sit there and they're able to say one thing and they feel another. And it's not that either of those things is a lie. It's just that sometimes you can mean something wholeheartedly and still there's something in the back of your head that's just screaming the opposite thing. Because sometimes it's really hard to not be contradictory, you know? I it brings me it brings me all the way to Walt Whitman. I contain multitudes. Do I contradict myself? Well then I contradict myself. But that emotional arc that Maeve takes here with this realization about what she had hoped for herself and Jesus was really heartbreaking but also really liberating to read because now, as she's saying to the woman when she lets him go, right, he's not lost anymore. He knows where she is. They're able to continue to make contact with each other. And there's, I think, a freedom of being able to let go of that specific grief that they'd been harboring for each other. I think in some ways has really almost set her more free emotionally and mentally than no longer being Paulina's slave, which is, I think, too bold to say overall. But when it comes to a lot of, I think, what was holding Maeve back in her personal fulfillment, the roadblock she had about Jesus was big in her heart. And now she's able to start to let some of that go. And I think it's similar for him, right? When she talks to Mary, she talks about the fact that this guilt that he'd been harboring over Maeve and the fact that he thought she died was consuming him. So now that they've kind of come back together and had this moment and are readjusting the terms of their relationship, now they're really, I think, going to start to be moved to greatness. That's what we're seeing at the very least.
1: I agree entirely, and not just because I've read this book before, but (laughs) I think there's something that... I was trying to find the quote about it, but there's a spot where Maeve is talking about how she has everything... That really, really resonated with me as a person who is never completely happy that I was trying to find. But it it has to do with the fact that she's still holding all of this grief for having lost Jesus or Jesus. And the fact that you mentioned that grief, I, I hadn't planned to bring that up is also interesting to me because you're right it is it's such a big important part of their relationship and I think reading it this time around it really struck me how negative he felt about it there's a scene where they both have very angry sex as they realize I think that things are going to end and that they're both their own independent people and ah as somebody who has been in many relationships I just really really relate to that because sometimes it really does feel like you can't be your own person when you're a part of such an all-consuming union.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, one that spans such a long time, you know, right before they get reunited, Maeve talks about the fact that it's been over a decade since they've last seen each other. And it is so deeply grief. They both act like the other person died, essentially. You know, even the way Maeve talks about it, later talking about the fact that, she doesn't actively think about it all the time, right? She can go days, weeks, months without it being at the forefront of her mind. But it's one of her, it's like something that's a lifeblood for for her. It's deep in her core running under the surface. And just because it's not actively surface level being thought about doesn't mean that it's not shaping who she is in her life. And as somebody who's gone through a lot of the grief of death and lost many people in my life that really resonated to me about what it feels like to have that kind of all-consuming loss not even necessarily in a romantic sense but just that's how grief in my experience feels and works and operates and having that chapter be kind of closed for both her and jesus i don't know it makes me really intrigued to see where the story is moving because it's almost like something seismic has shifted in them now that especially i think for him maybe now that he knows that she's alive because he legitimately thought she was dead that's a core fundamental thing that they've been carrying with them for 10 years so what is this going to unleash and does the letting go of this grief shaped them as individuals so completely that they can never come together again how is it gonna play out I'm curious to keep reading and see because I think there's a lot of ways it can go and still feel very human and very realistic
1: I agree I also think that that statement just showcases to everyone how little Maggie has read the bible because I don't think she knows guys we're not gonna tell her but I don't think she knows what Mary Magdalene is actually known for There's something else about the love story that I want to focus on for just a second, a brief second. Reading this, because we're getting it from Maeve's perspective, and because in Maeve's head, her love for Jesus is a divine thing. It's meant to be. It's a soulmate thing. When he left her, I felt personally victimized. And it's because I was like, well, is this kind of one-sided does he not feel the same way for her that she does him and I I feel like that is a little biased right because we're just getting this from Maeve's perspective she in some ways has chosen other things aside from him too but she would have gone I feel like if he had asked her to and oh I don't know it just really hurt it made me feel like like every time I've ever been rejected by someone who I loved you know yeah yeah I think that To me, that
0: just felt, though, very, I guess, true to what I do know about Jesus as the, you know, historical biblical figure in that as much as he loved Maeve, nothing came before God. And I think that that, especially in a historical context, is really true of how religion was treated back then. Nothing came before God in your heart. Not your family, not your children, not your significant other, if you happened to be lucky enough to like them. God was your number one broski. And I think that in a contemporary context, from what I understand even of friends of mine who are religious, because as we've covered, I have not that's the there's still kind of a changing of context there in that god kind of ties with those things now but he's not quite so number one for a lot of people i think maybe i'm wrong this is this is what i've been told by people i care about who are religious so i felt that betrayal with you but was also unsurprised given he is (laughs) that his work with God comes before his work with Maeve, and I think that what bugged me about it wasn't even just this betrayal or the betrayal of the love story but almost this idea that as this prophet he thinks that he is as or more powerful without her than he is with her which I think is partially her point is that as lovers of the world as these magical prophet people they should be more powerful together and he doesn't agree with that. And I think that that's the bigger betrayal, ultimately.
1: I get that. Yeah, I I think you're correct. I also think, for me, it's hard because the Jesus in this story preaches a lot of shit that I think matches modern day spiritual sensibilities a little bit more. He's very anti-hierarchical. He doesn't believe that anyone needs to be here to help you commune with God. He talks about paradise existing here. You have the chosen land. When he heals a man who is paralyzed, he says first that he's only doing it to prove to people that he can because they're not allowing for this idea that he has that everyone is worthy of love and forgiveness no matter what. And that's why he heals him. He, he's saying just because you're paralyzed, like you're not a pariah, you still have God's love and deserve God's love. But the, the dissonance for me comes from the fact that so all of those things feel very earthly to me. They feel like that matches, you know, my moral code. And Maeve's religion is literally just love. Love and sex, right? <laughs> but Jesus, for some reason, can't. He sees goddesses in her, but his god doesn't have a face and his god doesn't have idolatry. She still feels worldly and unpure, I feel like, from his viewpoint rather than everything is sacred and divine. Does that make sense? It totally makes
0: sense. And I think that that too, two points. I think that the first thing you're talking about with some of this dissonance is something that I find really interesting about this book because it's so well-researched. But you can still see where the author is kind of purposefully, I think, inserting some more contemporary sort of interpretations of things, which I think is really, really fascinating. Second, I think that this also plays on the point I was making last week and did briefly at the beginning of this episode about cultural context and how you can't ever truly completely escape the perspective you grew up with. Because I think that part of the reason Jesus is unable to see this in Maeve is because he's always been told that his God is the Almighty, the number one, comes above and before everything. And he's worldly enough to know that that's not necessarily inherently true, but is unable to escape that for himself as a form of belief. Because even as he's sort of in process of kind of creating this new religion, which is not how he looks at it or thinks about it in the story, and really not at how it's framed in the story, even as we're seeing certain Christian rituals kind of coming to life and being brought into the world, he's still just trying to serve his God, uh, the God he's always worshipped. And that's his only real desire. And I think that that's where so much of this tension comes, is the fact that Mave, in a lot of ways represents a lot of stuff that's exactly the opposite of the God he loves and worships. And I think that he doesn't have it in him at this point to rectify those two things, which I don't, know, I don't want to say is fair necessarily, but I do think is generally speaking a lot of what we rub up against now in contemporary society that is so heavily influenced and based in many ways on various religious texts
1: but ours especially on the bible
0: (laughs) but especially on the bible i sorry I, i was thinking more global when i said that but in the u.s very much christian based and a very specific brand of christianity if we want to get specific about it but we're seeing this tension happen in real time and people constantly now as what they've been taught and what they've been preached at kind of Differs maybe from what they see in the Bible and differs from their own life experiences. So I think it feels very real even as it's also, I kind of want to shake you because these things are not (laughs) oxymoronic, you know, they can be one and the same because Maeve's whole thing is about love and you are preaching about love, but there's a roadblock here.
1: Yeah, and it's just weird, too, because, I mean, it just further illustrates your point. But Jesus has seen May perform magic. He's seen work of other deities, right? And, yeah, it's the same as his magic. And also, in his faith, there it says there's only one God. And why, if it's so wrong to worship other deities or to have idol worship, why would these other people be blessed with the same sort of magic that he has? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like these are the
0: questions that kind of are, 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 have been around since the beginning of time at this point.
1: <laughs> All right, I want to pull us back a little bit more directly to the social commentary, though. So on page 349, chapter 43, The Rock, there is a, a sentence where the author directly calls out Marx. Oh, quick, quick aside before we actually go into that. As Maggie was talking, I just wanted to point out, for anyone that didn't know, Maggie included, Elizabeth Cunningham comes from a deeply religious family. That's the author of this book. And her father was some sort of somebody in the the church. I'm not going to say his full title because... Different people have different titles, and I don't want to offend anyone because I don't know what it is. <laughs> and she herself got her B.A. from the Harvard School of Ministry, too, I believe. So she's deeply like, embedded. She knows her shit when it comes to Christianity.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And Harmony and I's takes on this, are, especially mine, are P braid. I'm sure, compared to hers. She comes from nine generations of episcopal priests, so that's some deeply ingrained
1: shit there. That is deeply ingrained, yeah. So I think she's sort of earned some rights to play with Christianity's mythology a little bit. But anyway, on page 349, they're talking about how wonderful Temple Magdalene is, and it literally says in the text... And of course, we discovered the magic of the axiom from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Millennia before Marx, somehow there was always enough, enough help with harvest, enough food to go around, enough people to mind the children or tend the sick. This whole idea of bountifulness, right? One of the reasons I love this take on the text and one of the reasons why I consistently keep spirituality in my life, right? Is this idea of this exists to help us give, to help us have morals. And the best moral is always let's help everybody. Let's do what's good for the world. You know, kind of in your bones, that something is right or wrong if it's helping people, right? This helps the most people. This is probably the best thing. And I love this take, this take of bountifulness, and how we get hints of this later affecting Jesus's work, right? The idea of Temple Magdala being so bountiful because it it's just in such stark contrast to what people think of the world today as we view helping people as charity and in America in particular when we talk about Christianity there is a deep-seated belief in America that comes from a stem of Christianity that people who are poor are just like lesser right and that they don't deserve God's love but that is directly antithetical to the teachings of the Bible and this this text really plays up on that idea that it is just inherently moral to give to others non-discriminately
0: yeah no for sure for sure and i mean even on a word by word level there the way that cunningham crafts that sentence starts with undercutting one of the biggest criticisms that marxism and communism gets which is if people won't work if they don't have to and yet here in this scenario there's always enough people to help with the harvest and there's enough room in their lives for food and fun and play and work Because they're all doing it together to survive and to, beyond that, thrive and live whole and contented lives together. And I think that it really, it's subtle. But this book, I think, really makes you think about what actually motivates people. Because when you take certain factors out, like money and power, which at Magdalene is sort of what's happened, what you have left is just the desire to be happy. And to be happy, you probably need to participate in some fashion and make sure that you have enough food and your friends and neighbors have enough food. And of course, in practice, our current societal context, removing money and power from equations isn't necessarily possible in late stage capitalism. But I feel like stuff like this can show you the ways in which stuff can be done better and has been done better in the past it's just that money and power squashes things that threaten money and power and communes like this threaten that so they had to go
1: yeah i agree i think that the whole reason we have i think that you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about how it seems super impossible to take away money and power right because that's one of the reasons why so many people are so resistant to communes in, in today's society right is because Not only do we relate it with communism, and not only do we only associate communism with Russian fascism, we also have this huge, like, oh god, it's going to be a cult reaction. And that's fair, because there were a lot of cults whenever somebody tried to start a commune, because you can't completely take that idea of money and power out. And in order to do a commune, you do have to isolate yourself, right? So you could be more susceptible to certain types of influences because you're literally taking yourself out of society. But this book is nice because they're able to remain in society, they're able to be friends with their neighbors, and they're able to provide everyone a service, right? They're able to heal and they're able to provide the service of prostitution. And in that, they do healing as well.
0: Which is also, though, complicated again by the fact that part of the reason they're able to do this is because Paulina is footing the bill. So as much as money and power doesn't necessarily feed into how the commune runs when it comes to interpersonal and professional relationships, there is an aspect of which in the book they are able to do some of this because they don't necessarily have to worry about paying rent or whatever those costs are taken care of, which I don't think necessarily refutes any of the points that we just made, but is important to remember as well that part
1: of the reason they're able to
0: stay connected to society is that there's ways in which they still play within society's capitalist bounds simultaneously.
1: Something I want to explore with you that I thought about now that we're talking a little bit about cults themselves is Maeve says in this story that she doesn't have disciples, right? She has combregos. But it does kind of feel a little bit to me like she does have a cult of personality. She has a literal following. People left their lives to follow her on this harebrained mission. And I wanted to know what your take on that was. Could Maeve have the potential to be a cult leader if she wanted to? Or is this to you a definitely just more equal playing field? I think Maeve probably
0: could have been a cult leader if she wanted to, which... Inherently messes with some power balances, but I also think that that's kind of unfair to a certain extent because many of the people, at the very least, originally that she brings sort of out of their society to come with her have all suffered. Many of them in the same way that she suffered under Roman slavery, having been kidnapped and taken from their homes. Paulina has a weird power structure with her because Paulina has a lot of fucking groveling to do, essentially, in order to remain Maeve's friend. I think that things. Get a little bit more complicated when we talk about what she sets up with new people in Galilee. And I think that anyone who seems in charge, and Maeve is in charge, could have had that potential. But Maeve isn't interested in power in that way, and therefore I think purposefully puts herself and everyone else there on a more even playing field. I think that part of this question gets interesting because Maeve is becoming famous, and this is part of the reason that people are coming to her. And so fame gives her power, but it's not necessarily power that she's seeking out, but it's power that she wields regardless. And I don't think that she abuses it at any point so far in the book. I doubt it's going to take that route by the end of the book, but we'll see. But it does make me curious to know because word of mouth and notoriety are their own beasts. And once they've been unleashed, you cannot control or tame them anymore. So I'm curious to see what this new public image of her is going to really play out as and how separate it's going to end up being from Maeve herself and what whatever dissonance there ends up being between those two things does to Maeve and to Maeve's new following, if that makes sense.
1: That does make sense. And I think just to clarify things for anyone listening, I think what you mean by talking about her public image, I think what specifically you're referring to maybe is the idea of her being Mary of Magdala. She literally has a new identity. That is interesting. I also kind of wonder, too, now that we've been talking through this, if the secret to keeping things not super culty, because in reality, they are a temple, right? They're a temple of Isis. They're a literal cult. They have so much diversity, though, of belief and thought. It's never a requirement, right? You don't all have to be the same. They're all incredibly different people, with incredibly different roles and it's just like come as you are and you can stay as you are and we're not going to try and push anything on you. It felt very unitarian, universalist to me and I'm here for it. Yeah,
0: no, it's totally true. I mean, most of the people who are staying at the temple don't worship Isis at all even a little bit.
1: I mean, the whores do.
0: Yeah, but not everyone there does. There's plenty of other people who are who are also there, you know, doing their own thing with their own belief systems. Judith comes to mind yet again.
1: (laughs) And most of the people they receive aren't Isis worshippers, right? Because most of them are going to be Jews. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Is there anything else we want to talk about that really stands out to you? Can
0: we talk about feet for a second? Because feet are heavily revered in this book. There's certain ways in which some of the imagery is really obvious, right? Mae thinks a lot about Jesus' feet. So much of Jesus's story revolves around his feet from the the walking and traveling he does to moving through the desert, which we learn a little bit about, to even the fact that we know when he's crucified, nails go through his feet. So some of it really makes sense. But her obsession with feet and the imagery of feet in general goes beyond just Jesus and kind of their relationship. Maeve really reverently kisses Miriam, Jesus's mother's feet, after she comes to visit. And she's kind of been healed of her blisters in their magic pool. There's other times where feet really come in. Mae thinks all the time about walking and traveling. And I'm having trouble, I think, separating all of those nuances out where it's just really talking about travel and the fact that traveling on foot is their main mode of transportation a lot of the time. With all of the stuff about biblical feet, which I have some understanding of, with what I think is sort of a separate other level of metaphor happening here that I'm not really getting, and this trifecta is messing me up. So tell, tell me about feet,
1: Harmony. <laughs> oh boy, I'm not sure that I'm super, I haven't thought a lot about this, to be honest. I know that anointing feet is a big thing, and Jesus does that a lot. And he sometimes anoints his disciples' feet. And that is an idea about humility, right? That's where that tends to come from. Especially if you're a powerful person anointing someone else's feet, it becomes this radical sort of, we are on the same level and you are divine. And that's really... What we see Maeve do directly whenever she anoints somebody's feet, she is like giving them her goddess divine energy, essentially, and saying, you are divine, you are deserving of this, you are loved. I didn't think enough about the traveling on feet, though, but you're right. She talks about, in the last section, she talked a lot about walking barefoot. And I thought that was very much imagery to her quote-unquote barbarianness, I guess. But also, I didn't think a lot about it because I just, I relate to it, I guess. It just doesn't, I didn't feel like it needed a lot of explanation. You can feel more when it's barefoot. You feel connected. There's nothing separating you from the earth or from energy. I think that might be all I have. I think it's just mostly a humility thing and that you are divine. I don't know. I know a I don't know if everyone does this. Maybe I only do it because of this book. But when I'm doing like my witchy stuff sometimes, if it's a holiday, I'll bring Madden and I will wash his feet. So that's a thing people do. I know that Muslims also do that. They wash their feet before they go into the temple. So like that that's a very common spiritual thing. And they're, they're dirty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Some of that gave me context that I didn't have.
1: Okay. yeah, Yeah. But feet are also dirty. That's a big thing too, right? Because you're physically on the ground. I think for me, that's not the case necessarily, because she doesn't have that obsession with purity versus unpurity. But in general, they're viewed as dirty and, and gross. And that's why you have to wash them, to like make them acceptable for the divine.
0: Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know. It didn't really strike me that much in the first part. But just for whatever reason, there was a lot about feet in this part. And I was like, wow, this is a lot of feet. Just, just so many feet. So thank you, that helps, uh, especially with some of that context about anointing and stuff like that. I didn't, I didn't super pick up on that part. I do think, though, that your other point about the fact that feet are dirty is really interesting, because that's part of what plays into the humility of it, right? Is that you're kind of, you're, you're near something that people tend to try and stay away from. So that's interesting to think about as well.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think, because I don't have a ton of experience going to organized religion places, but I've. My friend, I had a friend once who took me to a mosque and like everyone was washing their feet in these very intricate baths. And I don't think I was allowed to. Like, I wasn't entirely sure what my place there was. But to me, I don't know. It was just interesting to see. Maybe someone can tell me about it. Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. What is the idea about washing feet? Yeah, somebody explained
0: to Maggie And, you know, if we don't hear by next week, then I'm sure feet are making a comeback in next episode. So really, this is in your self-preservation. If you want to hear me stop talking about feet, just come explain some things
1: to me. (laughs) (laughs) They'll come back. I I feel it. (laughs) Yeah. All right.
0: What is your homework for this week, then?
1: I've been having, like, a re... I don't... I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. Because we're in this time right now. We're in this time where... Everything is on fire and it looks like it's getting better. And I'm also kind of having a good week. And lately I've been pushed to like, I think because, you know, after, after Biden took the presidency, everyone was like, okay, we can just kind of forget about things for a little bit. Lately I've been faced more with parts of myself that feel uncomfortable and I'm like, oh, that still needs work. And I guess... I don't, I don't know. I I guess I just like need to keep, I I need to really push myself to be deeply anti hierarchical because I'm in grad school right now and hierarchy is just so built into all parts of our system and I just keep finding myself coming up against it and the work is just never really done. So that is going to continue in, in big ways in which I physically put my money and actions where my ideologies are. And I've been doing that more, but it also really has to happen in these small ways that happen with deconstructing the way I think, because I, I I, think I'm there and then I'll come up against something and then I'm, I'm like, no, that is deeply hierarchical. And so a lot of it's like self, self stuff too, right? You are not smart enough. And then you have to really think, well, why do I think that? You are not working hard enough. Well, is this actually true or is this just a part of like being a part of a capitalist system? And which we think that the only way to survive is to spend your entire life working. Yeah, so that's, that's my homework. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's it. What about you, Maggie?
0: It's okay. I get you. I'm with you. I think that similarly to you, you know, I've spent a lot of time, I think this past year, especially putting, I've been lucky enough to be in a position where I had a little bit of disposable income. And I think I've been putting a lot of money towards my ideologies and vetting, and I've spent a lot of time learning and I'm about to be fully vaccinated in the next couple of weeks. And so I think for me, I really need to start making an action plan of ways in which I can Remobilize myself in the communities that I really care about in a more actionable way that isn't just throwing money at a problem. Which, of course, I mean, funds are good, and I'm happy that I wasn't in a place where I could offer that kind of support to organizations and causes that I really care about. But making sure that I'm also giving time and labor, which is sometimes the most important resources that are the hardest to come by with people, and making sure that now that I'm in a place where it is safe for me, or safer for me to kind of go back into my community that I'm prioritizing taking action to back up things that I've supported, and that I'm not just like passively throwing my personal energy and reading things and money at a problem and thinking that that's enough to see the change that I want to see in society. I think thinking especially about the continuing fight with Black Lives Matter and being against Asian hate, and making sure that I'm actually putting my actions where my mouth is, which, I, which which sounds funny, but I've been able to put my money where my mouth is. And I don't think that that's enough when we're talking about anti-racism work. I think that you've got to be able to really go out there and mobilize and support in ways that are appropriate. And I'm excited to be able to get back to that work, but also a little bit daunted by it because it's been such a long time being in my house and not being able to do those things safely because I am high risk for covid So I think it's time for me to really start making an action plan so that I don't get scared and lax to go support things that I used to never think twice about going to support. It's very vague, but it's because it's like a, it's just when I know I have to put my mind too soon and I don't have an action plan because I haven't been thinking about it because I haven't been able to go anywhere. So it's time to fix that.
1: (laughs) That's fair. I also feel like an action plan is helpful too, especially when you're a white person trying to contribute to the cause, because it can be really intimidating sometimes to go and show up and be like, am I supposed to be here? But also you don't want to not be there because then you're not supporting at all. So I think it's good anyone who also has this issue about like feeling you are a part of the problem to really think about how you are going to contribute before you do it. So that you don't just end up being there and being awkward and being useless.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also important to know what motivates you. Part of the reason an action plan works for me is I'm a very list-oriented and motivated person. So for me, that way of kind of organizing my life and thinking, how can I use skills that I already have to make a difference ends up being the most actionable way for me to make a difference. But if you're not list motivated, and you feel like making a list is just going to be you making the list and then forgetting about it, you know, think about your action plan in a different way. But it is useful to put I think some forethought into into things, especially when certain things are like in crisis mode right now, and certain things aren't quite as like an up in arms crisis mode. You've got to figure out how to apportion your time so that you're not just reactionary, is what I'm going to say. You know, take measured steps when when you can.
1: Yeah, and for anyone looking to do any sort of action work, I'm going to give you all URL that I will link in the show notes actually maybe I'll just link it but there's a really great bystander intervention training that I found that is completely free and I feel like it helped me at least as someone who's living in New York City and comes across uncomfortable situations all the time and isn't sure how to like step in or whether I should step in it gave me a lot of strategies that I hope will help prepare me for these situations in the future because it's really hard when you see something not to freeze up. I have a really bad habit where I'll stay and I'm like, should I record? Do I record? Do I re-? And then it's too late, right? Then you don't get the recording. And then you can't give that recording to someone else and be like, hey, I have evidence of this thing happening. It gave, it gave good strategies and people should look at it. And it's free, which is good.
0: What are you reading, Harmony?
1: What am I reading? I'm reading A Duke, A Lady, and A Baby because the library took back the year of the witching. So now I have to wait three weeks to finish it. I was too slow. I was reading too many things at once. What about you, Miss Maggie?
0: Of course, I'm still in the the middle of the passion of Mary Magdalene, and then I'm also reading the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton. That's all, folks. Next week we're reading until the end of this book. Bye.
2: Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to Anchor.fm/rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.